Okay, what'd you guys think of the stuntman? It yeah. Good. It started off good and then? It kind of fell apart. Why? How? Um, I don't know, it was pretty straightforward and then it just, I, know, I, was, I was talking to Matt yesterday, it just got self-referential. And so like... And that's you bad? You didn't really know if, if it was the movie that you were watching or the movie that they were making. Uh-huh. But, I don't know, I've seen other movies where it was a little more entertaining when well, it wasn't. Th what, did other people find it that confusing? The end was a little confusing. How come? Uh, I don't know if they were trying to make it more complicated than it was. But the fact that she wasn't in the trunk, and they said she was in the trunk, and, and you don't know if he went along with the stunt because it was his idea, or if it was when we didn't see him, he had to deal with the other guy or something. It was like a little too much going on when it, it could have been a lot more simpler and straightforward. Okay. Um, anyone want to defend it? Yes, defend. I mean, I didn't find it that complicated. <laughs> I thought it made sense. But, you know, she, like, I mean, she literally explains what happened, that she, they found her in the trunk, and that then she was convinced of this mess of this. I mean, I don't know how realistic it is, but... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a realistic movie. <laughs> Okay, um, yeah. I thought that the exposition of the, of the main character's romance with the main actresses was, was pretty cool. That was like self-revolution where she was, where he was like, I'm bringing her out of the water and she was just like, oh yeah, just take me out of here. Like, we're in a movie, but we're not really in a movie, we're just actors, but we're actually in a movie. And if you can go further, that would be good. Okay, yeah, that's nice. That's um, kind of the op getting into the movie from the opposite direction from um, the way it's tempting you to get into it, which is um, movie movie making about movie making. Um, what about the... Um, um, how do I want to ask this? Well, what I want to say is we're going to watch um, another Buster Keaton movie today. Yay, right? You may not like it, um, but... Nevertheless, we're going to watch it. Um, it's his second-to-last movie. That was his eyelid that we just saw. Um, it's from 1965, and it's... Um, I think we'll watch it at the end of the class. It might make sense to watch it at the beginning, but we don't do things that make sense here. Um, it is Samuel Beckett's film called... Anyone know? Wait for it. Film. <laughs> Beckett did a film. He gave it the title, Film. Um, so it's Beckett's film, film, um, and if you were to do a film about it, you could call it your film, 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 or something. Um, and it's, um, Beckett, uh, originally wrote it and published it as a screenplay. Um, you won't, I don't think, find it really like watching, um, The Bourne Ultimatum. Um... He originally um, wrote it as a screenplay, and in the screenplay, Beckett, if you've ever read Beckett, you'll know that he sometimes explains things that you didn't feel like he needed explained, and sometimes doesn't explain things that you might have felt you did need explained. One thing he doesn't explain, but which is actually kind of interesting, is that one of Buster Keaton's early movies um, is has Buster Keating... Buster Keaton waiting for someone to show up who never shows up. It's a comedy, and his friend never shows up. And the name of the guy who never shows up is Godot. 
So there's an early Buster Keaton movie from the early 1920s in which Buster Keaton himself um, spends the entire movie waiting for Godot. Um, was Beckett thinking of that or not? Well, it's hard to believe that he wasn't um, in Waiting for Godot. Then um, towards the end of Keaton's life, um, Keaton died a year later, towards the end of Keaton's life, um, Beckett actually got the funding to make the film film um, and got Buster Keaton to star in it and to be pretty much the not quite the only character but kind of the only character. Um, as you'll see when you watch it, there are a lot of ways that he's thinking about that he, Beckett, is remembering Sherlock Jr. And um, what Beckett said in the screenplay for film was that what you should be thinking about, what the director at any rate should be thinking about, what the actor should be thinking about in making film is Bishop Barclay. That is the idea that to be is to be perceived. Um, a little bit later, Barclay will say also, will extend that to say, and this is what Beckett um, doesn't say but is clearly thinking about is that to be is to be perceived or to perceive. Um, that being is either to be the object of a perception um, or to be perceived um, or to perceive yourself. That is, um, the mind has a kind of existence also as well as the objects that the mind perceives. So we perceive this, therefore it exists. Um, but we who perceive it also exist. Um, so being perceived or perceiving those two things go together. Um, for Beckett, that is um, a fascinating and actually terrifying um, description, um, a terrifying definition of being, and he decides that Buster Keaton is going to be the person, um, Buster Keaton in old age is going to be the person um, who... Um, puts forward, um, represents, creates, shows um, what that idea of being perceived and of perceiving how they work together. So the movie's about 20 minutes long. Um, I think you, um, it's not quite as entertaining as Sherlock Jr., but it's certainly, you should see it once in your life. Um, maybe many times in your life, but certainly once in your life. Um, so we will get to it. Um, one of the things to talk about in, well, let, I'm going to ask this as a question. Um, I'm going to ask this as the most honest version of a question that professors always ask, but they never ask it honestly. So I'm just going to ask it in a totally, totally honest way. Um, why did I put those two movies together? You see the honesty of that question? Usually it's, do you see the deep connection between those two movies? That would be the less honest way of putting it. But why did I put those two movies together? Yeah. Uh, it's because they're both about people that are trying to do something that they're not really they're not. So it's how they are perceived by those around them. Um, huh. Is that why? Is that why, Matt? You don't know. <laughs> um, say more. What? Say more. Oh, so... The, by the two movies, I mean the stuntman and Sherlock Jr. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. So in the stuntman, we have this character who, who is running from the cops, who's trying, to, who's trying to hide from him by being a stuntman, which is something he's not. Eventually, he's forced into being a stuntman, so he might as well be in jail. <laughs> you think it's worse having Peter O'Toole tell you what to do than Definitely. Really? I mean Peter O'Toole just died though. I hope I hope yeah. you loved him. I hope you thought he was just totally fantastic. You should see him on Letterman. Google him on Letterman. Have you seen that? I haven't. There's a really good interview he did a couple years ago with Dave Iscoff about the stuntman. Oh really? Yeah. 
Oh, what does he say? Oh, he says that he hates all directors. Mm-hmm. And that, um, well, directors can do nothing with him. Yes, and at one point, uh, Iskoff asked him, um, you know, did you, did you think about, you know, like other directors you've worked with to play this director? And Peter O'Toole says, I don't play directors, I play men. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny in many different ways. Um, on the David Letterman show, just to tell you, so Letterman is inter- is interviewing him. You guys, I don't know if you guys know who Letterman is, but he's sort of um, your, your grandparents would have known. Um, and Letterman is does have this thing, which is he likes to pretend he's edgy, but he also likes to not be too edgy. Um, and it's actually a real problem when he interviewed Harvey Picard. Harvey P- Picard. Um, do people know who he is? Um, American Splendor. Um, so Harvey, so Harvey Picard was it was a um, graphic novelist, and by novelist I mean he did the writing. He didn't do any of the drawing. Um, people like Art, um, like R. Crumb and other great um, illustrators did the drawing. And American Splendor was a series of um, graphic novels that he did about his life as a hospital orderly in Cleveland. And um, so the whole title of American Splendor was "From Off the Streets of Cleveland Comes." American Splendor. And then there were stories that had titles like, um, you should know that Picard is Jewish before I tell you what the title of the story is, but one story would be, Waiting Behind Old Jewish Ladies in Line at the Supermarket. Um, And the story was just about how he always seemed to be in the line behind the old Jewish lady who would get into an argument with the checkout person over whether it was really 59 cents or 57 cents for um, a bunch of bananas. Um, and so, you know, fascinating. Um, and, um, but Picard was, uh, was a Marxist, and he really hated um, stuff that GE was doing, and GE owned, um, I guess it was NBC. Um, and Picard started trashing them on Letterman's show, and Letterman totally freaked out. Um, and so occasionally people can get Letterman to freak out because he's pretending to be Jon Stewart, but isn't. Um, <laughs> And so Picard did it, and so did Peter O'Toole. And what Peter O'Toole did on his version of Letterman, which you can get on YouTube, is Letterman kept wanting to go to the commercials that um, were actually paying for the show. And Peter O'Toole, who was just obviously completely blotto drunk, beside himself, um, standing up because if he'd had less to drink, he would have fallen down. Um, just would not shut up and wouldn't let them go to a commercial. And um, he was just so hilariously funny and so impossible to cut off. And Letterman is just squirming, and everyone else is just is just laughing uproariously. And, and that's Peter O'Toole. He's amazing that way. And he really is playing himself, um, playing himself, playing a man um, in, um, in The Stuntman. Um, and, you know, he's great. He energizes everything. Um, he's really, really, I think, wonderful. So at any rate, go on. So, <laughs> so he's in prison with Peter O'Toole as his master. Exactly. So we have this character who wants, who's trying to be something he's not, which is a stuntman. He's trying to also, in a way, be Peter O'Toole. Like, he's trying to be a, like, even an actor that he's not. And in the case of Sherlock Jr., we have this, this movie, this theater employee who's trying to be a detective, who's trying to marry this rich, this girl. And he can't in the end, he's still just a movie operator. He has this entire dream sequence in which he is the detective and he solves a crime. But in the end, he wakes up and it's not he who solves a crime, it's a, it's a girl that solves a crime. Right. So and a, she does it in the easiest possible way. Exactly. Which is to go to the pawn shop. 
Okay, so in both cases, what you have is someone who's got a really, um, well, I wouldn't say it's quite the same thing as having a really rich um, fantasy life, but a really rich des life of desire. That is that um, Steve Railsback wants to be like Peter O'Toole, Buster Keaton wants to be um, the great detective, the dream version of the detective. Um, and in both cases, um, the way that desire plays out is, um, well, what's similar here? What am I thinking? What's similar about the way the desire plays out? This is where you get all self-reflexive. How do they get to um, experience what they want to experience? By taking a different persona in a movie, that is by being filmed, um, by being, by becoming on film something that um, they can't be in reality. What's the difference? I mean, part of the part of um, what might be might feel to some of you too self-reflexive about the stuntman, um, but is certainly crucial about the stuntman, um, is that. What Peter O'Toole says is that what you can, you can do anything on film. Um, do people remember the line he repeats twice about um, God versus movie makers? How tall is King Kong? Yeah. Okay. So King Kong is actually not that big, um, but looks really big. Why does he look so big? Well, um, the movie maker is actually greater than God, is what Peter O'Toole says. What's the difference between a film director and God? The line that he says twice is, if God could do, I think it's a great line, and there's a question about um, how to read the line. Um, Peter O'Toole doesn't read it in that interesting a way, but, um, but interesting enough that it's still ambiguous. If God could do, here, see if you can remember the whole line. If God could do what we could do, he'd, anyone remember? Crack. No. <laughs> nice try. If God could do what we could do, he'd be a happy man. So what would make God happy? Utter control of what? Like space and light and time. Yeah, or utter control of perception, utter control of what can be seen. That is that um, what we can do is we can take things and make them look entirely different from what they are. Um, we can utterly control and manipulate the perception of things. So people can be driving across bridges and then not be driving across bridges. People can be drowning in cars and not be drowning in cars. We can um, affect in any way we want um, what we have, what is shown to other people. Um, so the interesting thing, I think, about the line, if God could do what we can do, he'd be a happy man, um, is the word man. Um, it's a little bit different if the line were, if God could do what we can do, he'd be happy. Um, that would be an interesting line as well um, and would suggest some of what he'd be a happy man suggests. Um, he'd be happy would get you the idea that God isn't happy. Um, if he could do what we can do, he'd be happy. Um, he can't do what we can do, that's implied, 
um, and therefore he's, he's not happy, or maybe it's the contrapositive, he's not happy, therefore he can't do what we can do, because if he could, he would be happy. Um, but what about the word man there? If God could do what we can do, he'd be a happy man. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like, it obviously puts it in the category of not like it. It almost like changes it to be. I think it might change it to mean more about what it means to be a happy man mm-hmm. than it means about God, which kind of makes sense because we're coming at this from the perspective of people. Yeah. So, so it would almost be weirder and more like. Like maybe like less interesting, yeah. If he just left it as God, like we'd be speculating what a happy God would be like. But we know what it's like to be a happy man, or that's what's been implied. Mm-hmm. And so you almost like the, the the statement, yeah. The statement is less about God than about being. And so so then the connection would be that to be a happy man is to be able to completely control perception. Um, okay. Yeah. One way. You could Okay, yeah. Less, lesser. Uh, yeah, I was going to build on the same, more or less the same thing, that uh, the basically when you add man, it means that anyone could be that you could do, then you would all be happy. Okay, um, yeah. Or basically, just to rephrase it, I guess, uh, for, for God to be happy, God needs to be God. Okay, if God were, if God were happy, he'd be human. Okay, so one way of, of understanding that, I mean, I think it's, it's, you may think that I'm overreading the line, but it is repeated twice, which suggests that um, you're supposed to pay attention to it. Um, and it's Peter O'Toole insisting on repeating it, which, again, um, suggests you're supposed to pay attention to it. Um, one idea would be um, an old theological question um, that people have. It's actually a question that Rousseau raises um, in um, some of his work, but... Um, Here's a question. Can God get a joke? <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> See, would God have laughed? Um, can God get a joke? Can God understand a riddle? Um, well, um, what do people think? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So um, the question is, could or another way of asking is, could God enjoy a mystery? Um, could God um, um, take pleasure in um, a good romance where it's not clear um, what's going to happen at the end? Um, there is an experience of human pleasure, especially of narrative pleasure, the kind of pleasure that you get in jokes and riddles and mysteries and stories in general where you don't know what's going to happen, where the not knowing is part of the pleasure. Um, and having that um, um, experiencing surprise is itself pleasurable. Um, and if God can't experience surprise... Um, then there's at least a certain kind of pleasure, a certain very explicit kind of pleasure that God couldn't have. Um, And um, if we were to say that that at least is part of what Peter O'Toole means by being happy, um, that for God, King Kong would always be three and a half feet tall. He would never be mistaken. Um, He would never think 
King Kong was actually gigantic. Um, God would see the correct size in everything. Do you remember what Barclay says about um, the question of the existence of objects when he starts talking about how big they are? Um, do people remember this part? Since I know you've now read your Barclay. I know it because I have godlike omniscience. Or maybe this is a proof that I don't have godlike omniscience, because what I seem to know may not be true. Do people remember what he says about size? Uh huh. No. Okay. <laughs> nice try, though. Good. Yes. I. I'm sorry. I suppose the right answer is yes. Now, anyone else? Um. So one thing that Barclay is saying. I'm trying to think if I should use this technique that um, Dan Perlman taught me. It just seems so cheesy, and yet it works. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do once. I'm going to turn my back, and then I'm going to say how many people have actually read the Barclay. And if you've read the Barclay, cough. And if you haven't, oh, you have to turn your back too, though. Um, and then how many people haven't, and then you can cough about that. And then I can get an accurate sense of um, whether you've read it or not without your having to, yeah. Um, sneeze. <laughs> okay, let's turn it back. So how many people have read it? <laughs> how many people have read none? Okay. Um, and the rest of you are just pleading the fifth. Um, <laughs> you still coughing? How many people have really bad colds? All right. Okay, let's, let me quickly summarize some of the stuff that Barclay is saying because I think it's, it's really smart and it's also he's doing something which is really counterintuitive um, and yet it's really, really hard to um, deny um, or to figure out a way to show that he's wrong. Um, and it's partly because he deals with the most obvious objections very, very elegantly and very quickly. So Barclay basically... The most famous, his most famous statement, the one that um, I mentioned on Tuesday as well, is that to be is to be perceived. Um, and that's <coughs> not the same thing, although he will agree with Descartes that um, I think, therefore I am, which could, by not too much deformation, be turned into whatever perceives something has to exist because if you could perceive, you exist. Um, perception implies existence. Um, I think, therefore, I am for Descartes. Everyone knows that, right? Cogito ergo sum. Um, you should know this because it's going to come up in Blade Runner when Pris says precisely that. I think, therefore, I am JF. Um, but that um, what Descartes is saying is I am aware of myself as thinking. It's not only that he's thinking, it's that he is, that he knows he's thinking. He's aware of his own thinking. And because he's aware that he's thinking, at least at the moment that he is aware of his thinking, he exists. <coughs> and therefore, in thinking, the idea, I think, therefore, I am, it's true because he's thinking it. It, he's not, he is making a general claim, which is that if I think about the fact that I might go for a walk tomorrow, I must exist because I'm thinking it. 
but he's also aware that at the very moment that he is thinking the idea, I think, therefore I am, that is true, that is self-sustainingly true. And so the idea that um, extending that, the idea that um, if you have conscious perception, if you are perceiving something, you exist as the thing perceiving it, as the mind or spirit perceiving it, is what Barclay will say. Um, that seems um, a fairly um, common, often, often um, argued against, but nevertheless a fairly common and hard to um, really doubt minimum standard for existence, for your own existence. While I'm thinking, while I'm perceiving, while I'm feeling pain, while I'm aware of the blueness of the sky, whatever, um, as long as I'm sentient, I exist. Um, this, is, this goes all the way back, you could say, to the Epicureans, who said you shouldn't be afraid of death, because where you are, death is not, or where I am, death is not, and where death is, I am not. I cannot die because I won't exist to be dead when I'm dead. Um, if I exist as a subject, a person, a soul, a mind, a being, um, that existence means that I am not dead because I have to be perceiving something. I cannot be dead um, in what we think of as death, which is absolute annihilation of all perception. Um, not seeing the dark, which is a perception, you perceive darkness, but not perceiving anything at all. Um, so it's an old idea, but it's an idea that Descartes uses in a new way, and it's an idea that Barclay um, clearly accepts, um, the idea that if you're perceiving, you exist. But the radical thing Barclay is saying is that to be is to be perceived, that there can't be anything that exists unless it can be perceived, but more than that, that its only existence is in its perception. That is to say that what existence, um, what constitutes existence, what, what it means for something to exist, is that it is perceived. So the examples that he will use are, for example, the idea of um, well, so the thing to say about this, first of all, is that this is this is a direct contradiction of Plato. That what Plato is saying is there's a world of appearances, and then there's a world of reality, and appearances are copies or imitations of what's real. So Barclay will say, or to take a Platonic idea, there is the specific chair, we talked about this before, and then there's the idea of a chair, which is an abstract idea. And then the question is, so what's the abstract idea of a chair? Um, and you could say something like, well, the abstract idea of a chair is something that has four abstract legs and an abstract seat and an abstract back. And then you can say, four abstract legs, what's an abstract leg? And you could say, well, an abstract leg is like a chair leg, only they're one of them, but the abstract chair will have four of them. And what does an abstract leg look like? 
Um, and every time you try to say what a platonic idea is, um, all you can do is describe something which, um, and it's always, it's, it's usually the visual which is, which is um, used as paradigmatic, but it doesn't have to be visual. But what you have to say is, okay, a leg is something that's long, and it's um, something that will support a, um, the seat in a chair, and it's probably about a third the height of an abstract human being. Um, but all you can do with the ideas is try to picture them. And what Plato is saying is pictures are representations of this realm of platonic forms, but they're only representations of forms. They're not the form themselves. So what is being represented when you have a picture of a platonic form? And Plato is really pushing the idea, but it's a very hard idea. It's the hardest thing in Plato. Um, pushing the idea that the forms don't look like anything. And they don't look like anything because if something looks like something, then it's a representation and not the thing itself. So forms actually can't, there's nothing they look like, there's nothing they sound like, there's nothing they feel like. Um, there's nothing you can say about the forms except that there are things that look like them. So if you go to the reason that the allegory of the cave takes the form that it does is that um, Plato is trying to get to the idea of the form itself by giving you a series of visual images that on the one hand become more and more vivid from shadows on the wall to little toys and other objects that are casting those shadows, to the fire, which is the light casting the shadows on the wall, to the mouth of the cave, to the things outside of the cave, the trees and the grass and the streams, to the sun reflected in the streams, to the sun itself. And the idea is that we're getting something which is brighter and more and more vivid visually as we head towards the outside of the cave until we look at the sun itself, which we can't see. Because if you look at the sun, all that will happen is you'll be dazzled. So it's not that looking at the sun is like looking into darkness. It's that when you look at the sun, you're not looking at something which has any determinate visual description. <coughs> it's the source of light, and it's what makes everything else visible, but it's strange to talk about the sun as visible if you just go out on a bright day. It's strange to talk about the sun as visible in the same way that you would talk about this as visible. This is lit by the sun, but the sun itself, if you look at it, it's the pure light rather than the thing the light is illuminating. So for some people, it's like, <coughs> what do you mean I look at the sun and it's just light? And other, everything else I look at is light from the sun, which has been um, attenuated, but it's all the same. It's still all light. But what Plato is trying to push is the idea that the forms can be invisible. And yet have visual and visible representations. That you can have something which is invisible 
like the sun, on some idea of invisibility. And the sun itself, of course, is not a platonic form. Um, that's only in the allegory. The sun itself would then be related to whatever the form of the sun is in the same way that the fire is related to the sun. Um, so something too bright to see, too bright to even imagine, unimaginably bright, which means if you take the idea of image in imagination seriously, something that can't be imaged. If it's unimaginable, you have no image of it. And then there are things in the world which are false images, but only some more false than others of this, of this thing that has no image, that is not an image. So Plato really wants to push the idea that there can be something which is not, doesn't have the form of an image, of which images are its imitations or representations. Now, that idea was really, really hard for people to countenance or for people to get their minds around, um, although some did. Aristotle, for one, did. Um, and Aristotle, in fact, probably got it right when he said that, for example, the image of a tree is a seed. That is to say, the seed doesn't look anything like the tree. But somehow, within this thing, which is barely visual at all, just this tiny seed, um, the entire tree is within that seed. The entire the tree itself is, in some sense, the image of whatever is contained in the seed to begin with. Um, I mention that because that's ultimately what Darwin is going to say explicitly. Um, what he says is that Plato is right about the realm of forms, but those forms are not in heaven. They're in, although Darwin didn't use the word and because he didn't have the term, but they're in DNA. That is, hum the human form can be found in DNA, not in some tiny little human being, but in instructions, in formal instructions in information as to how to produce a human being. Um, that's what you get in the matrix. That's what you get um, in what is now the um, change, the crucial change in the history of film from analog film to pixels, from representation, that is film capturing light that comes off the objects that are being filmed, to pixels, which are only information giving instructions on how to make something visible, but the pixels, the instructions themselves, are entirely mathematical. They're simply um, a set of coordinates with a set of numbers associated to, with every coordinate to tell you what color and how bright that color should be. So it's purely mathematical. Um, that idea is maybe something that Plato is heading towards. It's certainly something that Aristotle is heading towards, and he's somewhat skeptical that that was actually the direction Plato was going. Um, but the basic problem, again, for Plato, and the problem that Berkeley is picking up, is that you can't think of an object without thinking about how it's perceived. So he asks the question, well, 
where do we get the idea of objects besides our perception of objects? So we perceive objects, sure, everyone knows that, but we also have another idea that there's a real object, a real thing, which is something that goes beyond our perception of that thing. So Barclay's going to approach this, or does approach this, in two different ways. You could say from two different directions. The first direction, and the one that I've sort of been um, uh, going over already, is that if you ask what is the truth of an object, um, if any of you has read Stranger in a Strange Land, no? No one, really? I have. You have. Okay, um, and you have. So do you remember, I forget what they're called, but there are people in that book who are called witness, or who are witnesses. Um, do they have a specific name? Uh, it doesn't matter. But anyhow, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the coolest ideas in the book, um, that there are these witnesses, and what they do, you remember them? Do you remember what they're called? Uh, no, they were just like, to always be impartial. Like, you know. Yeah. So if you so so you would show them something, and I just remember this vividly um, from when I was like eight years old when I first read it. Um, and the demonstration was the lawyer figure would said to the you saw you saw um, a picture of like a house burning, and um, or the roof on the house was burning or something, and the lawyer um, said to the person who was learning about these witnesses, "What do you see?" He says, "Well, I see a house burning." And then the lawyer turns to the witness and says, um, what do you see? And the witness says, um, I see a certain angle of the roof from a certain direction in which there's fire on, in half of it. And the point is the witness only describes what they see rather than what they're inferring about the whole thing that they're seeing. Um, so they give you an exact visual description of what can be seen rather than of the whole thing. So what Barclay is saying is you can't imagine an object except from a point of view. There's no such thing, there's no way that we can imagine an object except from some point of view. You can't imagine a cup where you can see all around it at the same time what you, you wouldn't be seeing, what we call a cup, and you can't imagine how you would see such a thing. So everything you see, you see from a point of view, and it is internal, it is intrinsic to what a cup is, that you would say that whatever point of view you looked at it from, if it is cylindrical like this one, you would basically be seeing it curving away from you um, and you would only be able to see half of it um, from any angle that you saw. You could never see more than half of it. That would be internal to the definition of the very thing that you were seeing. Um, now the question, can God get a joke? You can also ask the question, can God see a cup? And one problem with that is that God might have something like an infinite compound eye in which he sees every cup from every angle all at once. But what that would mean is that God couldn't see a cup the way we do, which is to see only half of it at any one time, at most. Um, God might be able to see the whole cup, but then God couldn't have the visual 
um, impression of the cup that we have. Still, he'd have a visual impression of the cup. He would still be seeing a cup. And what it means for something to be a cup is it's hard to see what it would mean other than that it's round, and what that means is that it, um, the part closest to you is closest to you, and then it goes away, and then the part behind the part you can see is hidden. How could a cup be anything else? And Barclay is basically saying he can't imagine it in any other way. And that's true of anything. Now, he says, nevertheless, it's true that if I'm looking at something and I look at it more closely, I can see it better. And if it's farther away, I don't see it as well as when I saw it more closely. So it is the case that our perceptions of things can change. We can have different perceptions of one thing. So it looks like there's this thing called abstraction where we say the cup is the thing that gives rise to many, many, many different perceptions. And there are a huge number of different perceptions that you can have of this cup from different angles. Um, looking at it from above, below, and so on, um, from different distances, all those different perceptions you can have of the cup, and yet the thing that unites all those perceptions is the cup itself. So there is a thing called a cup, and the cup is what is common to all perceptions of the cup. And Barclay will say, yes, exactly. All the perceptions of the cup are what make it the cup. It is what is perceived as a cup. And the fact that you can have lots of different perceptions doesn't mean that it's something beyond its perception. To be is to be perceived. What can't be perceived doesn't exist. So people will say, well, that's not true. What they'll say is something like, the thing is, a cup is something that can move. A cup is something that has extension. A cup is something that um, the force of gravity acts upon and also that has its own little force of gravity. Um, when you read Barclay, you'll see how much is a response to Newton um, and how much is a concession to Newton. Um, a cup can move or be still. There are all sorts of things that you can say about cups that you can also say um, about baseballs, and you can also say um, about oranges and so on. And these are things that they have in common. So what a cup and a baseball and an orange has in common, it will be argued, is matter. But what Barclay will say is, no. Um, it's impossible to conceive of matter. It's impossible to conceive of um, shape. It's impossible to conceive of, um, of location without having some sort of visual or other sensory image of the thing you're thinking of. You can't think of an abstract cup. You can't think of abstract matter. If someone says, look, there's some matter here, and you picture what they're saying, you will picture that matter as having some color or set of colors, as having some texture, 
as having some shape, as having some um, perceptible qualities, because you can't think of anything except insofar as it has perceptible qualities. So Barclay is saying that anything you can think of, you're thinking of as an object of the senses. Anything you can think of, you're thinking of as something perceivable. Now, again, the question of how big something is, this is a question, we're not going to talk about this, but this is a question that comes up um, in Kant's critique of judgment, which is um, Kant asks, asks the, I said we wouldn't talk about it, so of course we will. Um, Kant asks the question, um, the precise question, how big is something? Um, how do we know how big something is? And if you let that question bother you, um, and often it's the kind of question that you can really let bother you if you have a lot of time on a weekend night and um, whatever. Um, but if you let that question bother you, it's really hard to come up with a satisfying answer to the question how big is something. Because what you'll always want to do is um, the only way you can describe the size of something is by comparing it to something else. But if you compare the size of something to something else, then all you have is a notion of its relative size. And yet somehow, and Kant insists on this, for Kant this is practically the proof of the existence of God, somehow we think that we have an idea of size which is not relative but absolute. That is, we really know we have a standard size which, is, which we really hold glom onto and we have a sense of what Kant calls absolute magnitude. And yet, there's no such thing in the world. All magnitude is relative. What were you going to say? Oh, no, it just reminded me, he was saying the same kind of stuff about numbers. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just an interesting thing, like, you know you might have three oranges in front of you, but, yeah, numbers. So, three oranges in front of you, but it could also be, you know, a fourth of a dozen, or, or yeah. Yeah, and Barclay also says, when he starts talking about towards the end of um, the essay on the principles of human knowledge, he starts talking about pure mathematics as maybe something um, which exists outside of perception, and he, he denies that also. He says that all numbers are actually numbers of things. Um, and are you thinking of that part also, that he says, for example, you can call something um, a 36th or a unit, or a, or, um, a twelfth, depending on whether it's a thirty-sixth of a yard, or a yard, or a twelfth of a foot. Um, he also gives it, or a third of a yard, if, it's, if it is a foot. Um, but in all those cases, there are different numbers that will apply to the same thing. Um, now, one standard answer, just so you know, to the question, which is not only, didn't only haunt Kant and Barclay, but haunted a lot of people, which is, how do we know how big something is? Um, is to say we use our bodies as the standard of measure for everything. So a foot is a foot. Um, that is, a foot is essentially what a foot is, the length of a foot or the length of a pace. Um, people know what an inch is based on? In, anyone know French? Oh, so what do, you, do you know what it's based on then? Um, it's actually a thumb. And the French word for inch is pouce. It's a thumb. So it's a rule of thumb is, in a sense, that is giving you 
the standard um, solution to the problem of absolute magnitude is that it's not absolute, but the thing that we most know and that we most live in is our own bodies. So we're always estimating magnitude with respect to our own bodies. But as soon as you think about your own body, as soon as you look at your own hand, the question, how big is your hand, um, can just raise the same issues for you. How big is my hand? Why, it's this big. But is it this big or is it that big? Um, really, how big is your hand? Um, so those are all questions that for Barclay, the answer means, um, the answer is that um, all we have are perceptions. There is no actual truth beyond those perceptions. But we can, in comparing our perceptions, if we look at something far away, if we look, look at something close up, the way we know something is far away rather than close up, or close up rather than far away, is not that because it's small we know it's far away, or because it's large we know it's close up. After all, King Kong is three and a half feet tall, but if he's close up, he looks huge. And the Empire State Building is, what, 10 feet tall then, um, but if it's close up, it looks huge. Um, no, we perceive how far we've walked to look at something. So there's another perception, which is the perception of our own motion through the world as things get bigger. But in all cases, we are comparing perceptions with perceptions. And so all existence only exists within perception and from a point of view. And so someone says, well, what about, you know, we know, for example, that, um, he doesn't use this example, but we know, for example, that, um, that there are blind beetles, which there are. There are these cave-dwelling beetles that lost their eyes because they didn't need them. Um, and the thing about blind beetles is it's not that, they, that they're going around saying, I'm blind, I'm blind, I can't see, I'm in this dark cave and I can't see, even in beetle language. Um, they don't have that beetle mania, as it were. Um, it's that the idea of vision is not an idea that they have. They are no more aware of not being able to see than you are aware that your knees aren't seeing. That is that, oh my god, my knees, they're right here. And yet they see nothing. It's awful. Um, it's just not a category for them. Um, so, says Barclay, or so says Barclay's um, possible interlocutor, um, what if there's some sense you don't know about? Um, like a sense, for example, that we've since discovered some animals have for um, magnetic direction, for the polarity of the, of the Earth's magnetic field, um, or sharks have a sense of um, polarity that they can feel in water. What if there's some sense that you don't know about, just as beetles don't know about sight? Um, and that could give you access to um, the thing itself, the object itself. And Barclay's answer to that is, if I imagine another sense, then I'm imagining another way of perceiving the object. It would still be something perceived and not something that transcended perception. All there is is perception. So there's one final question or one final um, argument that can be made, 
which is, but what about the fact that we perceive things with different senses? That is to say that um, I see the cup, but also I can knock into the cup. Um, and therefore, what's happened is that there are two different angles, two different senses of perception, and the cup is the intersection of those perceptions. And you could go farther and say that with the five senses that we have, um, and in fact we have more than five senses, as some of you probably know, but with the five senses that we have, objects are where senses intersect. Um, an object is not only the, th the thing that stays the same no matter whatever, what angle we look at it from, but objects are also where our sense of sight and our sense of hearing and our sense of taste, if it's, if it's um, a cup of coffee or whatever, um, all of those come together. So one perception tells you that there's an object there which will make it available to another perception even if you didn't know it. And that Barclay has the most interesting things to say about, um, because there, he's, there he comes up with the doctrine of signs. Um, but the place, I think, where um, you can feel the relevance of this to movies, to movies like um, The Stuntman and like um, Sherlock Jr., is when Barclay, and I'm sure most of you didn't sneeze your way to this part, but Barclay, who is a bishop, starts worrying about, um, well, what about biblical miracles? If it turns out that the only thing that exists is what's perceived, and there is nothing besides perception. And he really does say that, and I think it's really worth seeing if you can come up with a knockdown argument against that outrageous claim that to be is to be perceived and only things that are perceived exist. So if you're looking for a paper topic, try to knock down that outrageous claim. Um, but, Barclay says, one problem with this is it looks like it makes miracles not so great. That is, if it turns out that there aren't real things, but only perceptions, what's the big deal about Moses turning his staff into a serpent? since it's all perception anyhow. And so fine. So it's almost as though God is a graphic novelist, and in one panel, <coughs> he draws Moses holding a staff, <coughs> and then in the next panel, he draws Moses throwing the staff down, and the next panel, lo, a serpent. Anyone could do that, since it's only what you're seeing. He's not really turning a staff into a serpent. What he's doing is he's giving you a perception of a staff, and then a few seconds later, a perception of a serpent. And there's no, nothing more miraculous in doing that than in giving you a perception of this coconut water. It's really good, by the way, with the cocoa. You should try it. Giving you a perception of the coconut water, and then a second later, giving you a perception of the coconut water. It's just two panels, two successions of perception. So <coughs> what's so great? about miracles if it's all perception. So he has a really good argument about that, but um, now what we're going to do is look at what Beckett thought about all this, or thought Buster Keaton should have thought about all this. <laughs> and <coughs> we'll pick this up on Tuesday, which is also when I'll give you your um, take on the
and the takeout will be due a week from today? Um, yeah. <coughs> oh, shit. Second time I've done that. Okay, this is sil the totally silent movie, just so you know. <laughs>